Hi, and welcome to Fast Money, everybody, and CNBC's continued coverage of the coronavirus outbreak and the markets in turmoil. I am Brian Sullivan. Obviously, you can see a new locale, social distancing, just as important at work. But do not worry. We still have a big lineup for you all hour long with some big-name guests you've got to hear from. In a few moments, Florida Senator Marco Rubio will join us. We'll talk about the stimulus plan, whether he thinks the House will pass it, and whether it does enough for small business. Also, if you're out there, not a professional investor, wondering what to do in these tumultuous times, don't worry. Real world practical advice with Susie Orman is going to join us. Then could oil go to the low teens or even single digits? Maybe the smartest guy in oil, Scott Sheffield, the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, will join us along with Janice Henderson, CEO, Dick Weil. Thank you, everybody. It is going to be a big hour, but we have got to start with these markets. The Dow closing up about 1,300 points. Yes, its best three-day run since all the way back in the 30s. The only problem with that is we're also coming off the worst three-day run since all the way back in the 30s, and you've got some names that you know and need to hear from. We have put all the all-stars together. We have got Guy, Tim, BK, and Steve. Everybody, it's great wherever you may be to join you on this tri-state edition, really, of Fast Money. Guy, I'm going to begin with you. Nice little rally. You guys have all said we could have these violent rallies to the upside, but not to throw water on it, we've still got a VIX around 60. Yeah, and I was going to mention that again. I hope everybody's well, obviously. So, you know, my thoughts are quick. On the positive side of things, Brian, you know, as we've mentioned a few times now, the indiscriminate selling, just selling everything, seems to have abated. I think that's a really good sign. So there's some winners and losers, which is encouraging. I think the banks are finding their footing finally. Um, I think that's encouraging. You know, J.P. Morgan, which everybody loves, obviously for good reason, you know, that at its trough recently traded down about 1.3 times price to tangible book, which a lot of people would have signed up for many times over. So that's encouraging. And then the other thing I think that is good that although it's still extraordinarily volatile, the swings in yields have seemed to slow down a bit. And on the negative side of things, and you mentioned it, the VIX still hovering around 60 is, is a little bit alarming. I think a lot of people think the worst is still yet to come on the health front, which is terrifying for a number of different reasons. And as you just mentioned, some of the biggest rallies in history have taken place in extraordinarily scary times. So I think you got a lot of good and you got a lot of bad. And I think we're still trying to sort of weave our way through. I guess, Tim Seymour, what I'm a little bit confused by, and I don't, I'm not confused by the rally because we always get these violent rallies in the biggest downturns, is what got yep. us here? What turned around from Friday? Well, I think, Brian, part of this is is uh, is credit. Part of this is the dollar. Um, part of this is is getting some clarity on the fiscal package and which parts of the economy, uh, especially the industrial economy, maybe had a backstop. But let's first talk about credit, because to me, that's been the biggest unknown. Equities are always going to take their cues from the bond market, but more importantly, on the credit side. Uh, you know, today we had another day where you had uh, investment grade CDX coming in about 30 basis points, emerging market CDX coming in about 35 to 40, high yield coming in almost 20. So um, this is also part of the last three days. And, and coincident with that, and maybe as part of that, uh, is a move where the dollar is finally uh, given back some grounds. Remember, uh, three days ago, we were within uh, 40 or 50 pips, which is currency talk for bips, which is I won't bore you. Um, we were near 18 year highs on the dollar. So um, I think there are some market mechanisms that are coming back into play here. Um, confidence, certainly listening to companies talk about some 
uptick in, in both their businesses, but even, you know, airlines, Boeing, uh, travel companies, giving some insight at least into uh, what their businesses look like in this environment. What are BK's keys, BK? <laughs> yeah, well, BK's keys, I, you know, I agree with what, what most of the guys are saying here. You know, we, we have a little bit more clarity. If we remember just a week ago, we didn't know what the stimulus package was going to look like. We didn't know how big the Fed was going to be. Uh, we didn't know how long this was going to last. We still don't know how long it's going to last, but I would say every day that passes is one day closer, and investors are going to start to try to price that in. And so I think all the things that everybody mentioned that are real positives um, are great. You know, it, it is. We're trying to build something here. Um, nonetheless, you know, I mean, you said this from the, one of the best days since the 1930s. I've been doing this for a while. Maybe Guy remembers back in the 30s, but I don't. I don't think it was a real heady time for stocks. So I'm a little bit skeptical, but I think we could get a bit of a rally still. You know, it's interesting, Steve Grasso. I mean, we had that just absolutely horrific, record-breaking jobless claims number this morning, 3.2 million. The market shrugged it off. Steven Mnuchin on CNBC effectively saying it didn't matter. I don't think he meant the job losses didn't matter, but just that the economic data, it could be whatever numbers they are, that maybe they don't matter. Would you agree with that? And when do we start to pay attention to certain parts of data if that is the case? I think you have about a month or two, Brian, before you really start paying attention to the uh, economic data points. But let's talk about that month-end rebalancing because it is about the stimulus plan, but it is about the month-end rebalancing. Today on the close, we had $7 billion to buy in equities. That's a huge number. At month-end, quarter-end, next Tuesday, there is approximately $160 billion to buy. That's a tremendous number. That's got to cascade through the markets from now till then. So everything is going to jump. What I didn't find healthy today, utilities, real estate, healthcare, those were your leaders. So you're starting to see some shift into value. But don't kid yourself. We could revisit the lows right after month end. Okay, the lows may not be. And I'm going to get more on the macro markets in a minute, gang. Sit tight. We have some breaking news right now on General Motors. Let's get the GM news with Phil LeBeau in Chicago. Brian, no surprise, GM's leadership is doing what I think a lot of other companies have either started to do or will be doing, informing employees that they're going to have to cut some costs. And part of the cost cuts will start at the very top today. CEO Mary Barra, along with the CFO Divya Surya Devra, sent a video message to GM employees outlining the following steps. First of all, the senior leadership at General Motors cutting their pay between 25 and 30 percent. Salaried employees, they will have their cash compensation deferred by 20%. And then there are another 6,500 salaried employees in the U.S., essentially people uh, in engineering and manufacturing uh, who cannot work remotely. They're going to be taking basically an, a paid leave of absence, if you will, in which they get 75% of their pay while they're not at work. We should not be surprised that GM has done this. Earlier today, a memo was set out uh, internally at Ford, where CEO Jim Hackett said, look, the top 300 employees, the top 300 executives, they're going to have their compensation deferred. Anywhere from 20 to 50 percent of it will be deferred. So these are the types of actions, Brian, that I think we're going to see from a whole host of companies as they try to react to the fact that they've got to conserve cash as much as possible. 
But but they are going to be making the manufacturing workers 75% of their income right now. So they will be getting a paycheck at home. Well, that's that's separate from you're talking about the guy on the line. The guy on the line is going to end up getting guy or girl, excuse me, on the line is going to end up getting anywhere between 70 and 80 percent of their compensation. Some of that is unemployment. Then there's a supplemental benefit paid by the company. What I was just explaining here was those salaried employees who cannot work from home at General Motors. Um, those are people who are out in the plant or in engineering. They have to be there on the scene. Well, they're going to get basically a, a paid absence because these functions are not happening right now where they get 75% of their pay. But, Brian, don't be surprised. We're going to see this from okay. suppliers. We're going to see this from all manufacturers, this type of move to, to save cash as much as possible. Yeah, I hate to say it, Phil. You're right, but we could extend that. We're probably going to see it from all kinds of companies across all kinds of industries, sadly. Phil Lebeau in Chicago with the breaking news on GM. Let's get back to our market panel and the All-Stars guy. You heard Steve Grasso say he basically didn't think the bottom was in. Do you? Yeah, I don't disagree with Steve. I understand what he's saying. I mean, if you're trying to play this thing, and it's look, I understand it's extraordinarily difficult, and a lot of people just find themselves staring at the screen, which is okay, by the way, as well. But you have to ask yourself, you know, how much how much further does this thing have on the upside? And if you want to play a little math game, um, you know, you could take the recent all-time high of whatever the S and P was, thirty-three ninety-three, and then the low we made seemingly just a week or so ago, that twenty-one ninety low. And you can see this thing, the S&P trade up to about 2,800 or thereabouts, and that's probably level we fail at. So I'm, I'm in Steve's camp, unfortunately. It gives me no pleasure to say it, but I, for the life of me, I don't understand how the negative headlines are going away anytime soon. So, you know, maybe you have another, I don't know, what is that, another 150 or so S&P handles, but I, but I think that's about it, and then I think the next leg is down again, Brian. Okay, so it's Steve and... Guy on the leg down. Tim Seymour, two things. Would you agree with that? Do you think the bottom is in, or do you think there may be more downside to go? And what areas of the market, maybe banks, because credit has gotten better, look most attractive to you right now? Well, what's your time horizon? So I think what these guys are talking about are some technical levels, some tactical elements, some month-end buying. Um, you know, the fact that I, I would agree on those levels between 27.50 and 28 uh, gets you back to old resistance, old support. Uh, if you think about also what's been outperforming on the upside here, think about small caps, right? They they started the down move even before the S&P told, sailed off and have outperformed the S&P by almost 7%. I think watching uh, small caps will be another barometer for, for where this market moves. Yes, uh, if you look at Q1 2016, what outperformed on the way up after that? Uh, massive drawdown in recession scary was value. Um, and I think I think banks, you know, make up, you know, 35 percent of essentially that value trade. And if you look at how the banks have acted over the last couple of days, um, I do think that that's an interesting place to play. If if you're if you're looking for uh, timing the market here, I, I think the better approach for folks at home is to think about how you can maybe upgrade your portfolio. So you hear me use terms like don't cut your flowers and keep your weeds. This is a little different. How about um when you see big mm-hmm. stocks, value stocks that have been beaten up rally off the bottom, especially if you don't believe that uh, really stocks can, can move a lot higher, maybe, you know, maybe tactically take some profits in those and roll into a United Healthcare, roll into a, a Home Depot, roll into these high quality stocks you've wanted in your portfolio. Um, that's the activity I would be doing here. I would not be trying to time the tape. Okay, Guy, we got to leave it there. Guy, Tim, BK, Steve, we look forward to hearing more from you tomorrow night and in the nights to come. We need your voices. 
at a time like this. Thank you very much. All right, coming up after the break, though, we've got to talk about stimulus and real-world advice on the 401K and retirement side. We've got Senator Marco Rubio will join us. Is there enough being done in the stimulus plan for small business? We will ask him, and Susie Orman will ask her, if you're 50-plus and you're sitting on losses right now, what do you do? Susie Orman with some real-world advice. We are back with CNBC's continued coverage right after this short break. And welcome back to CNBC's continued coverage of markets and turmoil. And they've been on the turmoil to the upside the last three days of 1,351 points again today. It's the best three-day rally since 1931. Of course, the Dow is still down 20% on the year. But let's talk about something that is more important than the markets right now, and that is stimulus. Getting paychecks to those who are being laid off by the millions, as we found out today. And we're pleased to be joined now by Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Senator Rubio, thank you very much for joining us here on CNBC. First and foremost, do you believe the House will pass your guys' bill tomorrow morning? Well, the indications are they're going to try, and, and, I, and I believe they, uh, they will. I want to believe they will. I can't imagine what the alternative would be. And uh, it took too long for the Senate to act, but at least it got done. And um, so I'm hopeful that they'll pass that tomorrow. I think it'll be really important. No bill, of course, is going to be perfect, especially not one that is A, this big, B, this important, and C, that was done this quickly. What is the part you like most about the stimulus bill that the Senate has passed, and what is the part that you might like the least? Well, look, I mean, the, I, I would just say overall, the spending of $2 trillion is not something that I would do under the normal course of business. I mean, it would have to take something pretty extraordinary, and this is pretty extraordinary. I think we always have to stop ourselves and remind ourselves of what's happening here. We, our governments at every level, the cities, counties, states, have told businesses, you cannot function. You cannot open your door. You cannot sell things. People can't travel. People can't spend money with you, and your workers can't work. So this is not some market downturn. This is government fiat that has stopped the economy, where I think it's been really harmful, and it's the part that, that I um, selfishly like the most simply because I, I helped negotiate and author it, and that is what it does for small businesses and what we're basically trying to do is, is keep them whole for five to six weeks so that we don't have the economic pressures that cause us, uh, in addition to helping people economically, we don't have the, the economic pressures that cause us to lift these restrictions uh, before they need to be, uh, before public health concerns uh, call for them to be. Yeah, and, and help us understand how it works, Senator, because obviously I think the bill is something like 1,400 pages. We'll probably hit some. Yeah. We all have time. We'll read it this weekend, I suppose. But, you know, we look at there's so many different types of small business people. Of course, you've mentioned bartenders and waiters and waitresses and restaurant owners. You know, there are hair salons. There are barbers. But there's also things like Uber drivers or car salesmen, car salesmen who may have done very well in a good economy last year. And so they, their income may be above certain levels, but this year they may have made very little or nothing for a few months. Who is truly helped by this bill? So I'm going to oversimplify it, but even in this oversimplification, it's going to cover 80 or 90% of the people who are going to be helped by it. If you are an independent contractor, like a 1099 worker, a gig economy worker, if you are a small business of either less than 500 employees or meet the small business standard of the Small Business Administration, which is a – they have a – there's a code out there that goes literally by field to tell you how much, you know, how many employees and or your revenue in each of these categories uh, qualifies as a small business. So if you're any of those or a 501c3 
with less than 500 employees. So independent contractors, small business under 500, C3 under 500, you will go to a financial institution, preferably your own bank. Over 800 banks already participate in a similar program, so it shouldn't be hard to stand it up. And that bank will be authorized by the U.S. government to transfer to you 250% of your of your monthly payroll as of February fifteenth, okay, and and you if you spend that two hundred and fifty percent on payroll, on rent, on lease, or other type expenses for your business, you will not have to pay it back. If you spend it on anything else or a portion of it on anything else, that portion spending will become a loan a year from now at about four to five percent. So that that but basically you're not going to go to the government agency. You're going to go to a lender. All the big banks already participate in the seven A program, existing infrastructure, and repurposed it for for the for the purpose of getting money into the hands of small businesses quickly for payroll. Okay, I guess I'll oversimplify then my question. Said, and that was a great explanation. What if the banks physically are not open? Do you believe they've got the online capability? to handle this rush, because it will be a rush. Well, we've already been talking to some of the larger banks. Obviously, those they have, they have online capabilities uh, to do it. Uh, we're more concerned at the community level, at the, the credit union level. Some of the smaller lenders may need to, to, to you know, build that up a little bit. And that is a concern. If you ask me my biggest worry, my biggest worry is capacity. Do we have enough lenders to process the paper? The paper is not very difficult. You've got to prove you're a real business. You've got to prove you have payroll as of February 15th, and you've got to have a place to deposit it. And then a year from now, you're going to have to prove how you spent the money or it's going to turn into a loan. My concern is, as you've outlined, is that there are a lot of branches that are not open physically. So one of the things we've done here in Florida or starting to do is we're thinking about partnering and deputizing mayors and counties, local officials, because they know who the small businesses are. They've permitted them, and they know who the bank branches are in their community. And, and providing uh, a safe place where bankers can physically go and set up shop to invite small business in, in essence, acting as that final connector. Because I think local governments could be an enormous help in that regard. They they are down at the at the ground level, at the granular level of, of our economy, and 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 they they would be a great liaison to make those connections. You know, Senator, unfortunately, your state in the last week has gotten a bad look for good reason. A bunch of ding dongs kind of ignoring. All the warnings. Has that been cleaned up for the rest of the country? Can they say people in Florida, how whatever age or whatever level of intoxication are taking this seriously now? Well, look, first of all, these are visitors that we invite to Florida every year. We want them to come for spring break and the hotels, but the hotels are closed now. So there's nowhere for them to stay. Uh, the beaches have largely been closed as well. I mean, you can take a stroll on the beach, but you can't gather and have a big party. So I think all of that has come down, obviously. It's unfortunate the timing here was spring break, you know, right as the as the uh, orders were coming down at the local level to shut things down, and it created some very negative imagery. And, look, there, there are a number of high-profile gatherings in New York City and in other places that there's Mardi Gras in New Orleans that are now being linked to outbreaks 14 days later. So, you know, all these folks went back home, uh, wherever it is they're from, and, and so we'll see how that plays out. But, yeah, those images, that's not happening anymore. It's, it's unfortunate, the timing there. And uh, But, you know, again, those, many of those hotels are the people that are going to benefit from, from this program that we created. Yeah, and eventually that will all reopen. When that will be, we're going to find out hopefully sooner than later because a lot of businesses rely on it. Senator Marco Rubio, great job with the stimulus bill getting done. Let's hope the House passes it tomorrow. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on. All right.
Thank you. All right, coming up, two big names that have been in their respective businesses a long time that you need to hear from. One on the markets, Janice Henderson CEO Dick Weil. He'll tell you what to do with your money now and how the financial community is handling this. And then perhaps the smartest CEO in all of oil, Scott Sheffield of Pioneer Natural Resources. Could we see low teens oil or even single digit oil? And should the U.S. take a political role in the oil world with Saudi Arabia and Russia? A lot of questions. We'll get answers. You're watching CNBC and we're back right after this. All right, welcome back to CNBC. I am Brian Sullivan. Let's get the very latest on the virus outbreak and the pandemic and hope for some good news. Once again, here is Sue Herrera at CNBC HQ. I wish I did have some good news, Brian, but we're going to start with the latest numbers. So here they are. Global cases broke above half a million this afternoon. They have already risen to more than 523,000. The death toll has swelled to more than 23,500. More than 8,200 have died in Italy, where coffins are temporarily being stored in some churches. Here at home, the NBA is trying to do its part to educate people about the virus. Golden State Warriors star Steph Curry joining Dr. Anthony Fauci for an Instagram Live discussion of the facts. Dr. Fauci emphasizing the deadly nature of the coronavirus. It is not just the flu. It's very, very much more transmissible than flu. And more importantly, it's significantly more serious. Let me give you some very quick numbers. Okay. Overall mortality of seasonal flu that you and I confront every year is about 0.1%. The overall mortality of coronavirus is about 1%. And the virus is changing cultures. A French ritual is running into the harsh reality of the pandemic. Some in France are buying baguettes and masks and freezing them. In normal times, that would be a gastronomic faux pas. The outbreak is changing that as some sacrifice fresh bread in order to fight the virus. As always, you can get more on the coronavirus coverage at CNBC by going to CNBC.com. Brian, back to you. All right, Sue Herrera. Sue, thank you very much. Do appreciate that. We'll see you soon. I want to give you a live shot now of the White House. The daily coronavirus briefing is underway. If any headlines, again, are made from that briefing, we'll certainly bring them to you live when they occur. All right, coming up here on CNBC, what in the stimulus bill is being done to protect hotels across America that are pretty much entirely empty? Could they become roving hospitals? We're going to talk to the head of the Hotel Industry Association about that. And it's not just about investing. Many of you are no doubt facing financial stresses with health insurance, potential job loss, how to manage through that from a financial perspective with Susie Orman. All that and more after this short break. And welcome back to CNBC's continued coverage of markets in turmoil. We are very pleased now to be joined live from London by Dick Weil. He is the CEO of Janice Henderson, longtime industry veteran, obviously running a big investment company, was also at PIMCO during the 2008, of course, Great Recession. Dick, it's great to chat with you again, although under very, very difficult circumstances. Uh, Thank you for taking some time. I know it's late there. What kind of advice are you giving to your clients? What kind of financial advice would you give to our viewers, client or not? Because there's a lot of people who are very nervous out there for a variety of reasons right now. Hi, Brian. It's great to talk to you again. Um, our advice from Janice Henderson is that it's, it's too late to panic at this point. 
at one point we saw the equity markets down 30 percent. They've come back in the last few days, and, and now it's more like 20. But uh, it's probably too late to, to make that panic sale and get in front of things. And it's also too early to jump in. The, the, the severity of the crisis we're getting an inkling of, but the thing we really don't know is we don't know how long it's going to go, and the duration has a huge impact on valuations across bonds and stocks. And not knowing the duration, it's pretty hard to run any sort of a math model or even an intuitive guess about what things are worth. And so what we're doing now is uh, with our clients is we're taking a sort of a considered view we're up in quality a little bit. We're raising some cash carefully because liquidity is a problem in the market. But mostly we're, we're playing a wait-and-see game to see when we get a better handle on what the duration of this sort of global heart attack is going to be. I think at that point we'll have a chance to go and make purchases that hopefully will fuel returns for the next 10 years. This is going to end up being an amazing buying opportunity. But we're just not uh, confident yet that you can suss out the duration. And, and absent that, it, it's pretty hard to jump in with both feet. So if it's too late to panic sell, too early to jump back in, what do our viewers do? Well, I think you want to cautiously raise cash. I think you want to make sure that you have a high-quality portfolio. You want to stay away from the companies that don't have a strong balance sheet because if this does go a little longer than expected, you know, folks are going to have a hard time staying in business if they don't have a strong balance sheet. So you want to make sure you're up in quality and that you're raising cash because you're anticipating that when we do get a, a sort of a slowing of the growth of the virus and we do get a sense of how long the, the global uh, sort of house arrest will continue, at that point you want to have uh, dry powder in, uh, in order to make good investments. And so, again, it's probably too early to, to make those aggressive investments at this point, uh, you want to be preparing for that by going up in quality and, and raising cash. I don't know if you know this, Dick, but do we know who was behind the selling? I mean, for two weeks, the market was obviously going down in a free fall pretty much every day. But yet data I looked at showed the size of the average trade didn't seem to go up that much. It didn't appear, in other words, that mom and pop, maybe your clients, investors uh, with a couple hundred thousand or a couple million dollars in their investment funds were the ones who were selling. Who do you think was selling? And did you have to sort of convince, talk some of your clients, say, hey, be in it for the long term. Now is not the time to sell. When you look at the global retail investors heading into this corona crisis, I think the, the money was sort of coming in towards us in a pretty nice stream. And we thought there was an appetite to increase uh, risk investing. Obviously, that's all reversed through the corona uh, crisis, and folks have backed off that position, and, and sort of the river of nickels, instead of coming in uh, slowly, is going out slowly. But we didn't see a mass selling from our clients, either institutional or retail. Uh, and, and so we were asking the same question. It wasn't visible to us, but it looked pretty... Um, pretty broad. And it wasn't, we don't think, the largest institutions or the mass uh, retail population. So it's a little hard to put your finger on. Yeah, but we appreciate you trying. And I guess they're keeping fairly calm and investing on with Janice Henderson. Uh, Dick Wow, we appreciate it. Sage words, too late to panic, too early to jump back in. Be well, best to you and your family and all of your employees and their families. Dick, thank you very much.
All right, coming up, what is best for the hotel industry, which has gotten hit perhaps harder than any other segment of the economy besides airlines and restaurants or just as bad? We're going to talk to Chip Rogers coming up. And then does the U.S. need to take a political role in the price war being raged in the global oil markets by Russia and Saudi Arabia? We'll ask Pioneer Natural Resources CEO Scott Sheffield just that next. And welcome back to CNBC and Fast Money. And our continued coverage of these markets in turmoil. The Dow up 1,351 points today. It's best three-day rally since 1931. But that does nothing to soothe the economic pain that is being felt by businesses across America. Perhaps no industry hit harder than hospitality and travel. Airlines, restaurants, and in particular, hotels being hit very hard. We are joined now by Chip Rogers. He is the CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. And Chip I wish you could join us on a, on a happier time. I understand that occupancy rates among your constituent hotels are somewhere around the low single digits right now. Well, yeah, uh, particularly in most of your, your major cities. Um, we saw something, well, all of this are, are things we haven't seen before, but um, the most recent report showed that group meeting business has now fallen to less than 1%, so it's virtually non-existent. Mm. And what this equates to is that the hotel industry is losing about $500 million a week in, in revenue right now. And are you happy with the stimulus plan, Chip? Do you feel that it will do enough to help many of the hotels? And I'm not talking about the Hiltons and the Marriott's of the world. I'm talking about the thousands of hotels which are owned by a family. Maybe that's their entire source of income. Will it do enough for them? I'm really glad you pointed that out because unlike the airlines and perhaps the cruise ship industry, which are both extremely important, the hotel industry is made up of tens of thousands of small business owners. In fact, 61% of all hotels are classified by the federal government as a small business. We think this will help. There's no question about it. And we're looking for any lifeline we can get right now. Um, our main focus this entire time was how do you help the people, the millions of people that are employed by the industry, maintain some level of income so that they can pay their bills? And then how do you help these small business owners service their debt and just keep the lights on so that when this passes, they'll have jobs that people can come back to? And that's really the two focus that we've had. And the bill that is making its way through Congress, hopefully will be voted on tomorrow, um, it does both of those things. So we're very happy with that, but there will probably need to be more in the coming weeks. This is a tough line of question or one question, I guess, Chip, but but I've got to bring it up. Obviously, the industry... I would imagine, like we've heard the cruise ships talk about some of the cruise lines that said we can be floating hospitals, that's the case. Um, what conversations have been had about hotels filling some needs, uh, either for beds or for people that are healthy but under quarantine? You said you want to get out of your home, you need to get out of your home, you're, ri- you're worried about your family. Is there a safe way to go to a, to a hotel and say, I'm here for a week, I've got a little kitchenette. I, th- there's ways maybe the industry can help that we're just not thinking of yet. Well, I'm glad to announce we actually did start thinking of that about a week ago, and we created a new program called uh, Hotels for Hope. And we, back on Saturday night, so we're just talking about less than a week ago, went out to our membership and asked the question, would you be willing for your hotel to be used for either some form of a quarantine location or some version of a, of a hospital light is probably the best description we could give it, where hospitals get filled up and they need to put patients somewhere 
We were expecting a few hundred hotels to agree to do that. Um, as of this morning, um, we have over 12,000 hotels that have already agreed to do that. And there's only 56,000 hotels in the entire country. So hoteliers are stepping up. They want to be part of the solution. Wow. You know what? Private industry, struggling companies, but still willing to help out as well. Let's hope that's not needed, by the way, Chip Rogers. But at least we know that we've got other options should we need them. Chip Rogers, the American Hotel Industry Association. Chip, thank you very much. Best to you and all of your constituent companies. We've got breaking news right now out of the virtual G20. Let's go to Kayla Tausche for that. Kayla. Brian, G20 leaders uh, conferenced earlier today, and uh, the result of that, which President Trump is talking about now at the briefing at the White House, uh, is a pledge of $5 trillion by these countries to help shore up businesses that are affected by the global pandemic. Much of this will go through the IMF and the World Bank. A press release that was put out by the G20 just a few moments ago says that this money will go to protect workers and businesses, especially micro, small, and medium-sized businesses and the sectors most affected and to shield the vulnerable through adequate social protection. Uh, it is a part of targeted fiscal policy, economic measures, and guaranteed schemes to counteract the social, economic, and financial impacts of the pandemic. So no small figure coming out of the G20 countries while we are right in the middle of this pandemic, but putting the financial firepower of these countries through these various uh, international organizations, uh, trying to get more money, Brian, just into the hands of businesses worldwide. Uh, all right, Kayla Tausche with breaking news there on the G20. Kayla, thank you very much. All right, let's bring in now a very special guest and a man often thought of as one of, if not the smartest men in the oil patch, and that is Scott Sheffield. He is the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources. Scott, it's great to chat with you. I think coming off the Kayla headlines is very important because Saudi Arabia and Russia are members of the G20. They are currently involved in a devastating oil market share price war in the global markets of which the U.S. industry, your company and your employees are caught in the middle of it. Do you believe there is some kind of political solution to stop this oil dumping war where it's clear it's it's just now the last country standing? Yes, Brian, it's great to hear you again. It's been a, a lot has happened since Miami at the Goldman Sachs conference. But uh, we're, we're focused on the industry. We've asked um, POTUS. Uh, to put significant pressure on Saudi to stop this price war. We had 13 senators meet and call the Saudi ambassador last week. Um, Pompeo, Pompeo has um, called MBS. We know that. The G20 and the G7 have both put significant pressure to stop this price war. Uh, if we don't, we're going to be importing 60% of our crude again from the Middle East. Well, what have, what, have they, what have they said? I mean, I'm sure you're dialed in. You're the only CEO, by the way, I've ever seen at an OPEC meeting. So I, I know your, your, your ear is to the ground. Have the Saudis made any explanation for what they're doing? Why suddenly this massive rift between two countries that were sort of joined at the oil hip? No, I think you got two personalities between MBS and Putin uh, that are fighting each other. As you know, Russia's been cheating um, since last December with the condensate. Uh, re relaxation at the recent OPEC meeting in December, um, and then you go into this recent meeting, uh, they wouldn't cut. They wanted to see what happens to demand. I don't blame them. The same time, as you know, U.S. production's up 8 million barrels a day. We've added 4 million barrels a day since OPEC Plus put together their agreement in 16. Uh, I believe that one of them will blink. 
Uh, they both have about $500 billion of foreign reserves. Um, Saudi is estimated to be dropping about $100 billion per year. Um, Russia is somewhere in the 50 to $70 billion per year. So they will definitely blink. I don't know if it will be three months, six months, or nine months. But something will happen. It's incredible. And by the way, when you say MBS, you're not talking about mortgage-backed securities. You're talking about Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. I mean, in your years in this business, Scott, have you ever seen such a destructive price war? I mean, it's OPEC was created in a sense to sort of manage the market. Ironically, OPEC has sort of become an ally to the United States if they can stabilize prices. I mean, this is just asinine on so many levels. Pardon my, no, probably, I don't think that's French, only, but you get my point. Yeah, Brian, I'm probably the only CEO that's still around since 1986. Most CEOs did not go through that. It reminds me of 86. It's going to take a long time to balance the market. That's why uh, Pioneer and several independents are seeking a global settlement to look at really reducing productions with all states, OPEC, OPEC plus, until the virus has ended. Uh, we've run into roadblocks. We've had opposition from Exxon, who controls API and Texoga. They prefer all the independents to go bankrupt and pick up the scraps. We have other companies like Marathon and Oventive who are opposed to it because they're so financially stressed they cannot even cut production because they'll go bankrupt. So we're, 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 the action is really to prevent waste and loss of jobs um, and really to save our oil for national security. Yeah. And we really need Trump to do something or he's going to lose all the energy states in this election. Wow. So basically, if I'm hearing you right, Scott, I, it's almost I think it's sort of breaking news to my ears anyway, which is now it's not just Russia and Saudis against America. It is now the big super majors against the mid and small companies. Exactly. That's definitely what's going on. And we have no solutions. And how does it end? So we have no solutions. Um, what happens? As you know, there's about 74 public independents. There's only going to be about 10 left at the end of 2021 that have decent balance sheets. The rest are become ghosts or zombies. I, I hate to compare them to Chesapeake because Doug Lawler has done a great job there. But uh, essentially, we're going to have about 65 public independents. They're going to have debt to cash flow or debt to EBITDA of about five to one. And you haven't asked me about consolidation. Consolidation won't happen because too many companies will have too much debt. That's right. I mean, we've already seen some some bad deals out there. Scott, we got to get you on again soon because what you're saying is really powerful stuff. I wish we had more time. Uh, saying there's maybe 10 public companies. I know you guys will be one of the ones that are left, by the way. Scott Sheffield, thank you very much for joining us. Thank and you, the Brian. straight talk we needed to hear. You be well. Wow, pretty amazing stuff there. Scott's saying a majority of small and mid-cap public companies in the oil patch are going to go bankrupt by the end of next year. We've talked about that debt level a lot, folks. All right, coming up after the break, practical advice for you. Whether you're a big-time professional investor or whether or not you're just getting started or just feeling financial stressed at home, Susie Orman has been doing this a long time. She'll be along to offer real-world practical advice for you. Susie Orman is next right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back to CNBC's continued coverage of markets in turmoil. We're pleased to have a very special guest on right now, and that is personal finance expert Susie Orman, author of obviously a, a number of books, the latest of which is uh, The Retirement Guide for 50 Plus, Women and Money podcast, among many other things. And 
Uh, Susie, it's a real pleasure to have you on because these days, our audience here on CNBC is not just traders and hedge funds and investors and CEOs. It is people who maybe have never watched financial television before. They've got a 401k, a 529. They're worried. They're worried about their job, their financial stress. They need to hear from people like you. What's your advice for those folks right now that, that don't do this every day? Yeah, the, first of all, hi, Brian. Second of all, here's the thing, is that most people who are like you're talking about, everyday people that are investing in their 401ks and their IRAs and everything, they really aren't watching the markets every day, nor should they be, because it would drive them crazy. Their key to success, if they have time on their side, is to stay in the markets, assuming most of them really have at least five years, 10 years, 20 or 30 years till they need this money. And also most of them are invested in index funds, in mutual funds. Very few of them truthfully have all these individual stocks. If they just continue to stay in and dollar cost average, they would be absolutely okay. The biggest mistake they could make would be come out of the market, try to preserve their money, and then not know when to get back in. Because look what just happened these past three days. And now they're all depressed if they came out of the market because they missed it. So you have to stay in the market here and continue to dollar-cost average if you are able to having the money to do so. And let's let's explain, Susie, let's get real basic and explain what you mean by dollar-cost averaging. Basically, you might be down in your portfolio but you want to add money now, too, because if it goes up, even though you may not be where you were, you can balance out, correct? And you balance out by, you know, I've always said to people, why in the world would you want to buy something that's not on sale? You would always wait till it went on sale. The same is true in your 401k. If you have 10 years, 20 years, why did you want this market to continue to go up? You don't. You want this, actually this market to go down, which it did. So every time you put dollars in, your dollars buy more shares. The more shares you have, the more money you make later on in life when the market goes up, and you may need this money. You know, you're, you're speaking, you're preaching financial expertise, but the reality is, Susie, as you as, as you know. The pain of loss, psychiatrists or psychologists have found this out, is much greater than the joy of an equal gain. In other words, losses, they affect us more. It's a, it's a gut punch in so many ways. How can people navigate around sort of the emotional? Money is emotional. You bet it's emotional. So the main thing people need to understand, and I do this every Sunday on my update on the markets on my Women in Money podcast, right? is that if you just look at history, history will repeat itself in time. And the biggest mistake you would have made was to come out of the market in 2008, to not just keep doing it. And if you just keep talking logically to people and you get them to understand that fortunes are going to be made out of this time, and I believe that with every ounce of conviction I have, Brian, that this is probably the best buying opportunity out there bar none. Obviously, for those people who are stock pickers and everything, it's really fabulous right now. But when you're everyday people and all you have is your 401k and you do have time on your side, then emotionally you've got to just fight it. Because I can tell you, everybody's writing me now and 
they're all saying, Cindy, I'm coming out of my retirement plan, and I am going to pay off the mortgage on my home. And I keep trying to tell them, please, what are you talking about? If you come out, you're going to lock in a 30% loss. Then you're going to come out of the plan, and you're going to have to pay ordinary income taxes on it. Oh, good. Now you just created another 20 or 30% loss. So yeah. just stay calm. So I understand very well that it's very difficult. But I've noticed that people are listening if you can just keep them calm, and they should be calm. This will be okay one day. When? I don't know. But I can guarantee you that if you stay in and you just stick with it, Three years from now, you will be very, very happy that you did. I know we're running out of time in the program, Susie, but I think we have time for one more, which is, is it a good time to start investing right now? Oh, my God. I know God, it seems weird. Of course it is. No, there's, there couldn't be a better time to start investing right now. But here's what's so funny. Everybody that was crying about how much the market was going down, now I'm getting emails saying they missed the bottom. Susie, it's gone up three days. You know, for three days straight. Why didn't I get in? You will never, ever know the bottom. You'll never, ever know the top. Consistency. Consistency is key, but you need time on your side. And, Brian, if you need this money within a year, really, for something to send your kid to school, it's in a 529, on these rallies, that's when you have to come out. Because money that you need in less than three years should never be in the market to begin with. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, there will be people that, that do need the money right now. So we're obviously thinking about them as well. But hopefully, we will come out of this nightmare sooner than later. Susie Orman, uh, the Ultimate Retirement Guide for 50-plus Women in Money podcast. Always a pleasure, Susie, to get your practical, great advice. Thank you very much, and be well. Thanks, Bri. And by the way, for more about managing your personal finances in these chat, I know there's people that are thinking about a lot more than personal finances right now. We get that. There's a lot on your mental plate, but you can go to cnbc.com, invest in you, maybe take your mind off everything else that is going on as well. Thank you very much for watching CNBC's continued coverage. Mad Money with Jim Cramer begins right now. We'll see you tomorrow night.